Hi, y'all. This is Rebecca Botter. I am the host of the Search for Pink podcast, which is what you're listening to. I've had to record this so many times because, as you can tell, I have a cold. And when you have a cold, I feel like you have, like, cold brain. I'm just not making a lot of sense. Let's try it for the fifth time. Today we have Charlie White on the podcast. I talked to Charlie a few weeks ago. Charlie is the director and writer of the film Unsung. Her struggles might have broken the strongest of us, but this ordinary woman overcomes them all to become the unlikely heroine we've always needed. And it is following uh, one black woman's experience through slavery in the Deep South. Um, I was lucky enough to be asked to be in it. It's wild how long ago that was. Yes, I got to be in it. I got to be there on set with her, directing it. It was an 11-day shoot, and this was her first film. So many interesting stories. I I particularly love, there's a section about her talking about being a first-time filmmaker um, and directing just a feat, definitely a feat. I'm very excited for you to listen to that. There is, I had this thought after we stopped recording and Charlie messaged me, we both agreed, just as a trigger warning, this, there are some different topics that we cover that could be triggering. You're more than welcome to reach out. You could let me know what you're concerned about. I could let you know. Um, also, reaching out to Charlie herself, as you hear, the campaign for this has all been about conversation. So, um, yes, any concerns about what could be triggering, please reach out to me or Charlie Make sure you watch Unsung. That's going to be in the show notes. And uh, I really hope you have a lovely time. We had a very lovely time. All right. I usually say I'm going to do a great job. I can say I don't really think in this conversation I should say that. Um, but I will say it was a great conversation. All right. I love you guys. Bye-bye. Hi. Hi. How are you? Literally was like oh leave meeting and just like pushed it like that made perfect sense no you're fine it's it's been a long day how are you doing it feels like a long day yeah but know. you know at some point when it just all starts to roll off your back I think I'm at that point in the day oh good so I kind of I wrote down some questions about what I want to get started with Um, the first one is how does it feel to be hitting the one year, almost one year mark of releasing your first short film unsung? How does that feel? Um, gosh, how does it, well, I mean, considering the year that it was, it's almost like I had a baby a year ago, Mm -hmm. but I'm only just about to bring the baby out of the NICU. Like the baby didn't come home. You know what I mean? Because, you know, I had plans set up I had screenings I really really never wanted to do a big social media campaign to launch and release the film like I'm a very much let's do this in person let's have good discussions because the film was really created with generating discussion in mind and so I was so excited about these in person even though I swear I'm an introvert I don't, I don't want to get into this argument here but I swear I'm an introvert yeah but I guess I'm one of those outgoing introverts that confuses people because I really wanted to see this film with people and have live discussions. And so that was the whole marketing plan was built around that. And in fact, the marketing plan was born almost the same time as the concept of the film. So I was as committed to the marketing plan, the release and the 
touring and showing it to people and having these great discussions with these diverse audiences, that was as big of a part of the dream for me as making the film itself. So when COVID came and literally canceled everything, like, because I was releasing a Black History Month. So my first screening was supposed to be at the end of February. And of course, you know, that's when everything started shutting down and just wiped everything clean. So um, it was sort of the bittersweetness. Okay, the film is done, it's ready for the world, but it didn't, I didn't get to bring the baby home sort of feeling. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel like, doesn't feel like I've had this film released for a year. I mean, people have seen it, don't get me wrong, but yeah, but it, um, it feels like this is gonna be the real thing. release per se. I mean, hopefully there's a positive. Was there something positive that came out of it being online first before um, before you got to start having those interactions in person? I mean, I haven't really had a lot of interactions in person. I did like Facebook watch parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I still haven't had those interactions. I mean, I'm going to try and hook some things up. I, even though I'm fully vaccinated, I'm honestly not big on um, large gatherings yet. Mm -hmm like large gatherings, meaning more than threes a crowd. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. Um, so I don't know how much I'll be able to do those in-person interactions, but I do think I have something coming up. Um, I would say probably, I don't know that it, there's anything that feels good that came out of it, just to be completely honest. And I know people like to be like, what's a good that came out of it? And we're supposed to, I don't think anything that feels good came out of that. But I do acknowledge that for someone who's a little bit resistant to social media, slightly resistant to social media, who really is resistant to being in front of the camera. I love being behind the camera. I don't want to be in front. Um, it's forcing me to just deal with the present reality that this is pretty much the way to do things now. So, I mean, I was eventually going to come around to it, but I was going to try and sort of deputize other people to sort of be my social media surrogates yeah. um, after I interacted with them in person. Um, so it's, it's forcing me to get over that hesitancy to engage with people in a way that I probably wasn't planning to and will probably reach more people. Yeah. I love that you just said nothing that felt good came out of it because we are in such a, and even if it's been a, a year since some things happened pretty much instantaneously, people want you to give a positive reaction of like, right. oh, this all, my house burnt down, but the whole community came around and supported me and gave me a new home and clothes to live in. And you're like, that's awesome. But also, yes, your house burnt down yesterday. You know, <laughs> like we don't immediately have to have that. Like um, the examples that I come up with are always so specific. I love that honesty though. I really appreciate that. So that was like kind of the first thing that came to mind. But if we rewind to the beginning of creating unsung mm -hmm. when did that begin when was that first seed planted so in 2018 which is so crazy because we're in 2021 now was it wow. 2018 yeah gosh time really flies um yeah in 2018 which seems like in a century ago now 
Um, I was planning to, because I've always been a creative. I've been a missionary. Like I've always been unconventional. Like I probably was never supposed to graduate from college and go into the nine to five rat race. And, you know, in 2018, I had been teaching for a couple of years and I hadn't committed or signed a contract. I only kind of half-heartedly pursued getting a job at that point. I was doing a lot of long-term subbing. So I was getting my own classroom. I was getting a lot of the teaching experience, just not getting the the benefits and the pay. But I loved my kids and I loved my work. And I finally was starting to say, okay, you love this and it's probably time to settle into like a more conventional life. So, you know, you need to get a teaching job. And because, and I genuinely love the work. I mean, I think I'm, no matter what I'm doing, I'm an educator at heart. I've always found a way to teach no matter what I've been doing. So I thought that was it. And I, everything was kind of in that context for me. So I remember driving along and seeing a billboard for Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, which is a Nat Turner story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nat Turner, he, he left us a lot of room for uh, creative license. Like we really don't know that much in detail about this particular leader of a rebellion. And it's such a sensational story that people have really seized on it and it's been done over and over again. So I remember thinking, I'm really excited to see this movie. It's right up my alley, because by the way, I teach history, studies, and all of that. So that's, I love Black history. I've always been passionate about that. So I remember thinking, I'm really excited to see that movie. I love the Nat Turner story. But wow, that's really been done a lot. (laughs) And it just made me think of, and just for anybody who doesn't know, Nat Turner was one of the... Um, enslaved people who led a major rebellion and um, the rebellion was put down but it was very bloody they they killed a lot of white people and um, it's even a bit controversial to this day whether that's heroic or whether that was an atrocity of some sort Um, but anyway and, and he was on the run for a long time. So that makes the story more exciting. And he had, um, he reported having visions and things like that. So very sensational story. Of course, people seize on it. They write books, they make movies, plays, everything. And I just remember thinking randomly as I'm driving along, what about the people who didn't participate? Because quite frankly, if he had gotten everybody on board for that rebellion, they might've done some serious damage. They might, they probably would have gotten a lot further, right? So my thought just came to mind. So what about the people who didn't participate? Who were they? Okay, like who? And, and of course, there was somebody who snitched and, you know, I wasn't thinking about the snitch. The snitch is always in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but my thing was, what about the people who didn't participate in the rebellion? Who were they? What was their story? What was their reasoning? Like, how come they never get a movie? How come it's always Nat Turner or Harriet Tubman? Who These are people who I celebrate. I, you know, I love their stories. But how come they always tell the same, we always tell the same stories when there were millions of enslaved African-American, African-Americans who, they didn't do anything that big in terms of sensational 
you know, they didn't have, they don't have a story like Nat Turner or Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, or like, you, you know, these sensational explosive stories. But I mean, they survived slavery. <laughs> they, they lived long enough to, to birth new generation. Like, I just thought about that. And I was like, now that's a story though. Like, that's amazing. Like, I need to know more about these people. And as much as I, as I've studied it, I feel like, you know, we still, we still kind of emphasize the same few people. So honestly, it just occurred to me as I need to bring this up in class when I'm teaching social studies, this is going to be a thing that I'm going to talk about somehow. That was it. Mm-hmm. I had no intention of making a film. I, I listen, I write poetry, music, I, you know, um, I design clothes. I do all kinds of things. I had no intention of making a film. I saw a bumper sticker more than once in the same, within the span of maybe just over that summer, the well-behaved women rarely make history, right? It's a quote by someone who I'm blanking now. I, I know who said it, I just forget, okay? But look sure. it up. Well-behaved women rarely make history. And I totally get it. I probably will not go down in history as a well-behaved woman <laughs> because I'm, you know, unconventional and opinionated and outspoken and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I remember thinking now that can be read a couple of different ways and what are we really saying? And I remember thinking about all of the women who, again, didn't make a splash, you know? Maybe all they did was raise their kids. Maybe all they did was support their husband. Maybe, you know, maybe they were, they stayed in conventional female careers and maybe they didn't do all of the things that, you know, that seem like the right progressive feminist things to do to challenge the system. Okay, and so they didn't make history for that reason, but were they less significant? Were they less important? Um, Do we not respect them? And I'm not saying that that's what that quote is meant to say. All it's saying is that you don't, it's true. If you are quote unquote well-behaved, people will probably not remember you. But I have a strong appreciation for those women who they just poured themselves into their children or they were maybe educators who poured themselves into other children or whatever. They may not have made a splash, but I just have an appreciation for them. Um, And sometimes too, we have to remember that, um, you know, activism and a sensational type of activism can sometimes, the opportunity to do that sometimes can be um, more so afforded by privilege. Like, not everybody can break out of their daily routine to become a professional activist. So how how many women who didn't go down in history made a big difference because they raised somebody who did, you know? Do we know the names of all the mothers of all the people who have gone down in history? We don't, I mean, their names might be recorded somewhere, but do do we know their names? But they were significant. They did something awesome. They raised this person who changed the world. Or maybe they were the third grade teacher of this person who changed what, whatever. I don't know. I guess I was just in that mode to be thinking of all of the unsung heroes, right? And so this is where the title of the movie came from. So I went to the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History, which I'm probably saying the name wrong. Anyway, I, I only made it to the first floor. It was the exhibit that takes you from basically the shores of Africa, little little teeny bit of that, the middle passage through slavery, civil rights movement. And you go in chronological order 
and I was going through and I was seeing all this stuff. And I remember the middle passage is just like unbelievable. I've learned about it before, but I mean, that museum does such a good job of like really illustrating everything. And I remember thinking to myself, could I have survived that, right? Because a lot of, you know, there were a lot of people who they died in the Middle Passage or they committed suicide. They jumped overboard. There were women who um, uh, had babies and held their babies in their arm and jumped over or, you know, you know, they were doing everything during the Middle Passage. They were raping people. They were do beating people. They were doing all of the stuff, chaining them together. They were sitting in their feces and other people's feet. It was horrible, horrible. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, could I have survived that? Would I have been one of the people that jumped or died or wow? Like, I just don't understand that anybody survived that. And I, and I, and I just felt an incredible sense of reverence for my ancestors because they've made it in those conditions um, and went on to lit. Like, I just, I was like, wow, like everybody didn't die. Like everybody didn't kill themselves. Like. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just never came up with the answer in my mind. I kept thinking, I'm not sure if I could. Maybe I could. Maybe I could have the will to live that I would live through that, but I don't know. When I got to the exhibit of the slave sales, there were so many, okay, they had bills of sales, they had advertisements, they had all kinds of things, finally naming people who were sold. They had an actual slave block behind a glass. So you could really visualize. And I remember feeling like I just owe it to them to read every single name. Okay, these are the unsung the unsung names. We never know these names. We know Harriet Tubman, we know, you know, Nat Turner, we know Denmark Bassey, we know Frederick Douglass, we know Sojourner Truth. We know a handful of names. We do not know all these names. So I'm going to read them. I'm going to let them pass through my lips. I'm just going to show reverence. I'm just going to pay my homage and I'm going to read every single name. And as I'm reading, they have ages, they have relationships, family relationships, all of this in these documents. And I was struck by how many, like such a high percentage of these sales were young women and their children often being sold away from each other or women being sold for breeding, which means the intent is to impregnate her so that she will have children that she will take from her. Um, young children being sold, which means if they're being sold by themselves, they're being sold separate from their mother, just families being separated. And I just, okay, so as a mother, like everything in the world filters through motherhood. This was the part where I was like, oh no, I couldn't survive this. This I couldn't do. Um, how, how is it that all these women, and many of them much younger than me at the time too, how did they have their children ripped from their arms and not just, how did their heart not explode in their chest and how did they not just die on the spot? And how did they go on to live another day, to work another day, to have more children? And how did all these people continue to come together and form family units, knowing, you know, listen, for far lesser things, listen, Rebecca, we know, we know so many people, honey, who can't commit for far lesser reasons, okay? These people were forming family units, still trying to have families. That's such a human thing. Um, they were asserting their humanity. They were just being so human and, and, and so vulnerable. And, and could, I was like, how? Like, how do you have the strength to go through all of that 
and then have the strength to nurture generation. Like, so I'm thinking of all these women and I just couldn't relate. I just was like, I, I just, like if they were all me, like if they were all clones of me, I wouldn't be standing here. And not none of these black people in here, <laughs> we just wouldn't be here. I just wouldn't have been the one to, to make it through that, I feel like. And, and I've had people say, sure, you would have. You don't know what you, child, no, I don't know. I just feel like they were better than me. They were better than a lot of us. Um, so I just remember just having so much reverence come over me and just being so grateful and just so in awe of my foremothers, really. That's where Clara, the main character, was conceived in my mind because here, she, here I'm reading all these names of people. We really don't regularly celebrate them by name. And they were probably not as extraordinary as a Harriet Tubman because she's an exceptional figure. They were probably just regular women like me. And they somehow accomplished this amazing feat of just to keep going, to keep birthing generations and to keep nurturing and to somehow nurture children who had some sense of their own significance so that they would continue to hope for freedom, so that they would continue to fight, so that they would be able to go. I just don't get it. I will never be able to put it into words. So Clara was born in my mind at that time, not some extraordinarily you know, heroic, sensational person, just a regular woman who was a nurturer, a mother. And really they are the backbone of of our heritage, because there was there was only one Harriet, honey, but there were millions of Claras, okay? And I just felt like she deserved her day, you know? But I still thought to myself, I'm gonna write something or just do something small or have my students create a story around her or something. Like, I still was not planning on making a movie. And then the, the thing that really sealed the deal, one day when my daughter was taking a nap, I somehow came across Ryan Coogler's, one of his student films, it's called Locks. And Google just delivered it to me because you know Google, how it listens to us and brings us what we, <laughs> what, we, what we want. I didn't look it up, but it heard me talking about Ryan Coogler because this is Black Panther craze was going on and mm -hmm. I was very interested in Ryan Coogler, but not interested on the level that I was looking for his student film per se. I mean, I did, at some point I did look for it, but trust me, that's not normal for me. I am nerdy like that. Like I definitely will see a film or be hearing about a film and, and want to watch the interviews with the director and learn more about the creator and stuff. But I don't think I expected to actually come across his student film. So I clicked on it. It was literally six and a half minutes long. I remember this so well. And it was no dialogue. It was all action and the score. And I remember just being so blown away and being like, oh my gosh, this Ryan Coogler guy is such a genius. Like just being so impacted. And then it's like God told me in that moment, see that story that I've been, that's been growing in your mind. Cause Clara was conceived at the museum, but her story was growing in my mind. And I remember thinking, who, who, what, <laughs> like me, I'm gonna do that. Because I had no intention or desire. And I remember thinking, is it gonna be a six minute film? Am I supposed to do it without it? Like, I just knew that whatever was happening between me and this film, like it was birthing, some, it was causing something to really be conceived in me. And obviously it grew into like a, a 36 minute film and it did have a script. But um, 
that was it at the time. It was like a surprise pregnancy. And it wasn't even like, that's when I found out. Up until then, I knew something was growing. I didn't know that it was a film. So it was like a surprise pregnancy. That's that, That's how it all started. I had no idea, no experience, no money. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew I was pregnant with this vision. Kind of had a life of its own from there. So this was your first short film. And I'm in the film industry. I have friends who are a part of it. And one of the things that always really amazes me is like the first couple steps, like a friend just reached out to me asking if I can help uh, work, start creating this project, um, costuming something. Right. And I said, yes, obviously she's fantastic. Um, but mm-hmm. I also know she's asking me to costume. Maybe we'll be making it next month. However, I also wouldn't be surprised if maybe we're, filming it like next year or in the next two years like these projects can take a ton of an um incubation (sighs) like you were saying a pregnancy so I mean I'm sure that was intimidating what was um the beginning of you acknowledging I'm pregnant with a film (laughs) but then how did you start uh working on getting it out into the world I was a part of a creative group and I was again I was not in this group um, to be making a film, I had other ideas and I just wanted to be supportive. I like being around support creative people and, um, you know, we feed off of each other, you know, that vibe that we get. So even if, so you might be a musician, but you will still enjoy being around an illustrator or a filmmaker, you know, fashion designer, because we just, we just all feed off of each other feed off of each other. So when I knew I was going to make a film, I did have people in my circle who could advise me accordingly. So um, I just had to talk. I just had to talk to people and say, I believe I'm supposed to make this film. And I do not remember the first conversation I had with a person about it. Um, But you just have to start with what you have. And if all you have is a vision, then you need to talk about it. And once you start talking about it, then you will attract the resources. And I'm not talking, I know the law of attraction is like a popular, (laughs) um, this is not magic. It's not witchcraft. It's as simple as when you start talking about something, if people are interested in what you're talking about, then they will on their own decide whether or not they want to be invested some way or another. So for about the first year, for pretty much the entire, pre-production phase, I had zero dollars, but I was just collecting people just by talking about what I wanted to do. And I mean, at some point I had to talk about it and then ask a couple people for some money to support it. But trust me, it wasn't a lot. It was not a lot. Um, It was just enough to make like a a teaser trailer. And then um, it was just a lot of talking just saying what God was saying to me and attracting people who were interested. And, you know, Atlanta is the place to be for stuff like this because, you know, the indie artist creative spirit is so strong here. And there's so many people here who have amazing talent, but they're building their portfolio or they're just doing it for the love or whatever. Um, So the resources are there in terms of people. So, I mean, what I would say and what I say to people who ask, I want to do this, but I don't have any money. I would say, but do you have people? 
you need people more than you need money, really. To begin with, you will eventually need money. But if you have people, then you will get money too, mm -hmm. eventually. But get people first. Get your team. Get your tribe. Because that's, they're the ones who taught me. They're the ones who said, you need to do this first and this next. So, oh, I do remember who I talked to first. Um, a friend of mine named Ellie Bond, but she has a filmmaking background. And, I'm, and I knew her as a filmmaker and a mom because we were in a mom group together years ago. And when it was time for me to make a film, I was like, guess what? God wants me to make a movie. And she was the one who gave me the start here, do this, do this, do this. But she's not the only one. There were other people who stepped in and picked up and were like, okay, from here, do this, do this. Like, I remember my first casting call. I had no idea how to do that. That was a filmmaker who really, Sister JJ does everything. So, but anyway, <laughs> I, I recently dedicated a post to these people on Instagram um, because I, I didn't know what to do. They were holding my hand and I was taking baby steps and we we're just doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I had a little cousin who's not a filmmaker, but she's a writer. She went to a writing camp at some point during summer camp. She's the one who told me which software to use to write my screenplay. Cause honestly, I had no idea what format or how to do a screenplay. Um, and I remember being at her, her house and they went out to get ice cream. I said, all right, well, I'm going to stay and write my screenplay because the whole story was in my head. I hadn't written it down because I didn't know how to. And I pulled up, um, I pulled up the, the software and I tapped out the screenplay in just a couple days because it was already there. I just, again, didn't have any context to put it in. I didn't have a platform for it. And um, yeah, and then I was talking to somebody in my creative group who was a, a director of photography and he edit, edited my screenplay for, not for content, but for format. By the time I hired a, someone else as a DP to shoot the film, he again made some adjustments for format so that we could move forward with the, the production. Like it's just one step at a time. Mm -hmm. People were more important than money in this. Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a good point is like the people that will work with you are the people that are passionate about your project. And you found people that wanted to be a part of this, not just, I want to be a part of a film, you know, but they were also, right. it, take, it took them being passionate about this concept. I remember talking to you about it. We were at Blueprint. And when you were talking to me about it the first time, I was so impressed. And you were like, here's my idea. Here's what we're shooting. Here's the, like, you knew what the vision was so clearly and I feel like um it makes sense why people were able to come around you is because you had never made a film before but you knew what the story you were going to tell which was really cool um yeah that's all I had I knew the story and so I just kept telling the story right yeah I did that to you too <laughs> at that time I was trying to cast so um yeah I just knew the story I didn't know how I was gonna do it um, but yeah, people were attracted to the story because it is a very powerful story. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was it. Well, and I just kept talking to people and you know, Blueprint is another good place to be mm -hmm. specifically if you're going to do something creative. It's just a very creative church. So. It is. Um, what, since you just mentioned casting, how did you cast your leads? Like the actress that played Clara, that's a such... I mean, obviously, uh, the lead character, but like such a challenging role. How did you go about casting that? She was referred to me by um, Sister JJ, one of my mentors. Um, 
You know, most of this casting was really unconventional. Everybody just kind of fell into place by divine appointment. I kid you not. Very few people that I cast in the beginning were still in the movie by the time we shot it. Mm-hmm. I recast some roles literally within hours of the production time. Um, so she, so we had someone referred to me by another mentor who I offered it to her and she didn't like the role. She didn't want it. Then I had another person who I was approaching to um, sing the score or work on some of the music for the film. And she she is an actress, but I knew she was just had a baby or something. And I was like, it's probably not a good time. So I just asked her about doing the music and she was open. She was like, I would love this role. So, and she would, trust me, she would have done an awesome job, but with the family situation, it ended up just not being a commitment that she could keep up with. And so pretty late in the game, I had to recast her. Um, That's after the first table read. And um, I called up my mentors. I'm like, I'm looking for somebody. Y'all know actresses. I don't know actresses. You got (laughs) And at this time, again, because I, at this time, I still was a bit social media shy. I just didn't have the following to really be able to rely on my social media following to get me an actress. And um, yeah, this is the JJ said, I work with this lady. She's perfect for the role, blah, blah. And I just took her word for it, honestly, because I know her. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Joy. And after talking to her, I just felt confident. I just got a good feeling about it. And so she ended up with the role. And literally, most everybody else was a, almost a last minute recast. Yeah, I remember, I think I remember very distinctly being- You were a last minute recast. Oh, I was like a less than 24 hour recast. Yep. Yeah. You're the only one. (laughs) No, I mean, it's all, that's so funny. I remember um, being at work and I was like, oh yeah, that was forever ago. And then I was like, yeah, okay. I'm not doing anything Saturday morning. And it all, it's wild how it like all works out. Yeah, we were on the verge of canceling almost every day of production. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it was 10 days of, or 11 days of production. I don't know. There was one that was a complete wash that we just threw it out. And it was a ex- very expensive day because it was at a historical site. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a day that had literally cost me thousands of dollars to set up. And we had to tr- scrap the whole thing. And I was like, I, I, I almost quit the whole was it my second day of production? Yeah, I almost quit the whole thing at that point. I was like, oh no, we are not doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just decided to keep going. Um, I had to get a lot of pep talks from people that, you know, this is show business, honey, this is how it is. So I was like, all right, we'll 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 try another day. Um, this can't keep happening. What but happened? We'll oh, everything. Um, traffic because we were shooting a couple hours away in, in North Georgia mm-hmm. and, and we shot this thing all over the place. So not too far from where we shot the scene that you eventually did, but we were in another mansion. So traffic, people getting lost. So for some reason, Google Maps, if you put in the address of the place, might accidentally take you across town somewhere else. Um, so we were losing daylight and then it started to rain. Rain was not in the forecast, or it was like a 10% chance, but no, it rained. Um, there just everything that could go wrong went wrong that day, and we just didn't end up with anything that we could use. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it was just exhausting. <laughs> yeah. For a second day of production on your first film, it was like everything that could go wrong, everything that would make you want to quit. Yeah. It all happened that day. And so. how did it feel? Because as the director, everyone's mm. looking at you, you know? Right. It's like, hey, it's raining. And they look at you as if like, can I you can check the off? weather. Yeah. And then <laughs> you're like trying to come up with a solution. I'm sure that's wild. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I, all I can say is everything that could go wrong went wrong. It was all out of my control. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that went wrong went wrong in the last hours. So I, it was already, you know, it's already shaky when you're working on an independent production, you're working with all these people who have other jobs. You, It took a lot of coordinating to get 20 people on the same schedule on this particular day. This is also a working museum kind of place. So you have a X amount of time to be in this space unless you're gonna pay these people to shut it down. So we couldn't. So I think it was actually, it was not a weekend. Um, so it took a lot of coordinating to even make the plan. And it was one of those things where the whole plan was sort of teetering on the head of a pin. Like it just, it didn't take very much to throw it all out of whack. And not only not very much happened, a lot happened. So it was just, it was just a bad experience. Well, <laughs> can I ask, would you do it again? Do you think- I this- wouldn't do it this way, no. No, 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 no. Would you, would you write slash direct a film again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I have other projects in mind. Okay. But we will not be doing it this way. Okay. I, no, I wouldn't, no. See, this is what I'm, I'm just gonna admit. Like. <laughs> No, but it's it's a learning thing. And I think a lot yeah. of filmmakers start in film school where mm-hmm. it's like in kind of a constructed thing and it gets yeah. better and more fleshed out because I've done some student films mm-hmm. and um, and it's, yeah, they're learning as they go. But you started off with a very ambitious project, like right oh, out of the yeah. gate, you know, you had yeah. like, you, you had a large cast, you had, it was a period piece. So then you had, you couldn't just tell them to show up in navy pants. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I do not recommend for anyone who's planning a film career, I do not recommend that your first film be a period historical period drama. Mm-hmm. I do not recommend that you have to source locations hours apart. <laughs> I don't recommend having a large cast. I don't remember recommend 10 days of shooting I don't I don't yeah like I don't I don't recommend that it be 30 minutes long like I would just you know that is not the ideal way to start start it experience as a filmmaker I would not and at the time to be honest with you Rebecca I was like this is not going to be a career I'm gonna do this I'm gonna go back to teaching because this is too teaching is hard it is hard and I entered that a really hard way too. You know, it's conventional. I thought this is going to be my first film and my last. And so therefore it has to be really good. I'm going to be a quality snob and we're going to make it, if, if this is the only thing people remember me by, like I, I need to make it that good that it doesn't look like a first film, right? And so um, I was very picky about the costuming and the locations. And I mean, 
you were there when cars were driving by and we were yelling cut like there's no cars in the 1800s mm-hmm. we can't we can't, can't have that sound in the scene and yeah so yeah I don't recommend starting with that mm-hmm. and it, if I had known that I was going to make more films if I had started the conventional route and been a film like this is not where I would have started yeah. it would have been like here is a man and a woman in yeah. a room talking <laughs> you yep. know that on the dialogue there we go Good lighting. yeah yeah absolutely it'd be some cute little stuff that I'd post on some YouTube channel with little shorts it built a lot of character what can I say so I have other projects planned they don't none of them are historical period pieces yeah um and I will not be doing them the bootstrap way yeah yeah Yeah. I think um I I think it's interesting because I've heard many artists say about different projects they're like no if I knew how hard this was gonna be and people are like it's amazing and they're like yes but this was so hard. Like, thank goodness I did not know how hard it was going to be or I wouldn't have said yes to doing it, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. There's a reason why God doesn't show you stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, I am not one of these people. I, I don't like pain. I try not to choose it, okay? And, oh God. If, I mean, if a lot of people were honest if they knew about how hard things would be, they may not have gotten married. (laughs) They may not have, (laughs) you know, not because there isn't a benefit, but not because it isn't something wonderful that comes out of it. It's like, people don't like pain. We don't want to suffer. And I think, to be honest, a lot of times we'd rather be bored than suffer something just to get something better on the other side, right? Like, there are some of us like we are quite content with mediocrity as long as it doesn't come you know we just don't want to pay the cost right and I feel that way sometimes there's um I tell this story all the time there's a guy on this commercial does it still come on some carpet cleaning commercial and he's like I've been working for this company for 30 years and I love my job and da 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 And I remember that commercial was coming on a lot during production. And I remember being so jealous of this man because he was so content with something so simple. And I just was like, God, why did you make me a person with big vision? I don't, it, cause you know, when you, I just feel this way for, I just, for all my creatives, I just want you to know my heart goes out because you know what I'm talking about. Like when you're a creative and you have a lot of big vision, and even if you're not creative, you might be just somebody who's innovative, who's an inventor or something, whatever it's, that's creative. Um, But, or just an activist who's a change agent. Like if you just have big ideas and they will not leave you alone. And it's kind of, it's kind of tough because on the one hand, you're passionate about those things and and yeah, but there's a part of you that might just like, why can't I just be ignorant and not care? Why can't I just be one of these people that just doesn't think of stuff and is very content with the nine to five and a week of vacation? You know what I mean? Um, why, why can't I just be happy with that? This man seems so happy cleaning carpets. Like, why can't I be happy cleaning carpets? Um, and it's a bit burdensome, you know what I mean? But I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. 
it's not handmade. We need those people in the world because we need our carpets cleaned. And I want the guy who's cleaning my carpets to be happy. I don't want him to be miserable cleaning carpets. I want to be totally happy doing that. But there are those of us, we just don't get that. And you know what? On the other end, we get, I guess, the glory of doing these amazing, beautiful things. And there is a great satisfaction in, in the product. I literally cannot report that this was a great enjoyable experience no I would not want to do it again if I had seen it coming I probably would have said adoption I mean I'm so proud of the 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 finished product I really can't wait for it to just go out in the world and do the things that I think it was meant to do but girl that was hard and no if I had seen it coming I would have run I would have been Jonah honey out of in Jonah. I appreciate your honesty. It's so funny because one of the things I was about to ask you was what did what do you want to accomplish with this film? Mm-hmm. And you explaining it, it's so clear because I had no idea that you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. But with how you're trying, um, how like the whole process of this has been, it's so much from like the perspective of a teacher, which mm-hmm. I find really, really cool just like of how we are equipped how like there is some you were meant to make this film and you were equipped in this very special way and I think a lot of people would say oh a teacher is here to say right answer wrong answer you know but actually that isn't a good teacher you know it's to get you to think what a cool thing that also your students for like ever you're gonna Mm -hmm. be like hi welcome to my class now it's time to watch the film (laughs) that I'm you guys to think I just hope people see it and they want to talk about the content and I didn't you know it's a 30 minute film I don't want to give too much away but I would say um not only as a creative but really just anybody who cares you know about what's especially what's going on these days and nothing new is going on by the way nothing new at all is going on but I think that the conversation about what's going on is getting richer since 2020 Mm -hmm. and you know, issues of faith, gender, issues of, um, you know, racial inequalities, economic issues, like, there's so many issues within this film. For, I mean, I feel like we covered a lot in 35, 36 minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, both things that are significant to individuals and significant to us as a society, society collectively. So that I guess that's it for me, just I hope people will see it. Mm-hmm. that they will want to talk about the issues and that's another show like talking about the making of the film mm-hmm. is a whole different show it's a whole other show to talk about the issues within the film so but again that's what it's for it's for people to see it and find a friend to yeah talk, about. talk, talk about, about it and i'll be linking it in the show notes and then with promoting Thanks. this episode i'll be sharing it Thank um you. but yeah no it's so exciting and i'm glad that it, I'm sure it's, it was like heartbreaking not getting to have those in-person conversations, but also right. having it online. I mean, I don't know if you have a way to view who, where in the world it's being shown. Like with my podcast, I can see like someone's listening to it in Germany. I'm like, oh, weird. But um, it's just like, you kind of, you just never know. I, I've had people message me and be like, I don't know how I found you and we don't know it will no, but it's like, they've been nice and normal, but like, they're like, I don't know how I found you, but I really needed to hear this or something. Mm -hmm. And we don't have any mutual followers. You know, sometimes you're just falling down the Instagram rabbit hole. 
right. Just like you finding um, the student film that really inspired you to do it. I did make it a point to be really historically accurate with this film, which, you know, people are not as always committed to that (laughs) when they're telling, uh, ironically, I made up this character and I've probably been more committed to historical accuracy than people who told stories about people who actually lived. And I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that with biopics. I think I understand what a biopic is as a filmmaker. And so I don't hold them to that standard, Um, but I know other people do. They're like, that's not what really happened. So this is such a historically consistent, it's it's a film that's so consistent with history and things that really did happen. As a matter of fact, all the dates in the film align with specific uh, significant events within that time frame. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious as to how someone who is not American would react to this very American story. Um, and I actually, I was born in Jamaica, so I still have a significant sense of connection to my Jamaican culture. Um, so America is my adopted historical family. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm curious as to what Jamaican people would say watching it, you know? I mean, yeah, so people do respond to an African-American story probably a very different way than Americans would. Um, But that story, because I live here, is what informs my life experience more than, you know, the story of the place where I was born. Um, So I view it very much as, you know, from an American perspective, but I'm, I'm sure that it would get an interesting response from people elsewhere. My favorite movies are when I do connect with a character who I have nothing in common with mm. and realizing, did you see Moonlight? Yes. And yes. I'm not wow. a, I'm not a gay black man, but right. I was watching him and that pain, just the human pain. I couldn't right. relate to his experience, but it was, oh my gosh, the acting in that movie was so good. It but was. There, there was this humanness to him and I'm like oh my gosh I connect with you and I literally every single thing about me could not be more different right um but yeah well we tried to do that with this film when I was filming the trauma scenes and there's only a few I didn't want this to be one long trauma movie Mm -hmm. um I thought about that how to film it because I didn't want to make pain porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of black suffering for people to mm-hmm. indulge in on, in media and, and in the arts. And I didn't feel like I just needed to feed any more into that, but I needed to address the trauma somehow. And I really thought about how to do it. And which is, which is why if you watch the film, you'll notice that the trauma is never graphic. Mm-hmm. And that there is a lot of emphasis on the eyes, um, the the use of silence is strategic, yeah. Of when um, versus when you're hearing something, and it's it's about helping people who do not see themselves on screen. To um, it's not only about that, but one of the reasons for that strategy is helping people who do not see themselves in this scene to find a place to relate to this person because you're looking at their eyes, because you're, um, 
and and I hate to keep invoking this man's name. Okay, so this is before I obviously made this film before the George Floyd video came out. I don't know if I ever. I had, I took a long time to watch that video because I don't need I don't need to see what I already know goes on over and over again. I don't need to be re-traumatized without me seeing it. I knew what happened, right? But um, I it was clear to me. I remember talking to a lot of black people, being like, "What's going on with white people? Why they?" Why they? Why are they tripping all of a sudden? Why do they care? Mm. Right? Like, why are they all of a sudden? Like, this has been going on for so long, and something about George Floyd, and all of a sudden, especially white women were like, "Oh no!" You know, they're spilling out into the streets, and like, you know, as though I remember we would be thinking, like, "What's going on with white people? Like, why are they responding to this particular incident so differently?" Right? And I do believe that it is because that video was so striking because you could look into the eyes of the victim and the perpetrator and you hear that man call his mama oh my gosh you know what I mean and it was so long I think that people just got drawn into his soul like you really would see the soul of this person and 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 you have in order for you to care you have to see yourself somehow right you have to see your own son your own husband your own brother your own daddy some you have you not otherwise it's very easy for you to roll over and go to sleep and just forget it having me like that's such a shame um and so that much that's the only thing that i can think of of, of what really happened is that people never got that view. And so we had made it a point in filming the trauma scenes to give people sort of that type of view where you have time to find yourself in this moment that this shouldn't be happening to anybody. What if this was happening to me? Or you know what I mean? Like this could be my sister, this could be my me, this could be my daughter, this could be, um, and you're not, you're not gonna see, see it the same way as someone who can literally relate to the, you know, the actual history and relate to being a black person in the situation. But the, the goal was not to give you more raw flesh to look at, or you know I mean? the goal was to, to, get, to go where she is in her spirit and to realize like the damage and the violence and the, the injustice is not just being done to a body. You know, this is being done to the image of God. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's why you're supposed to care. Uh, so I really hope we were successful in that. We definitely mm -hmm. made it a point. I don't want any blood dripping. You know, I do not. I didn't want a graphic rape scene. We don't look. I don't need to see any more of that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't see the value in it. You know, um, would you I what you said about trauma porn and how like if we just use just the industry and awards, you know, awards kind of are BS. It's everyone right. handing each other a statue back and forth. Right. Um, but with how in like the Oscars and the Golden Globes, we often reward black pain in the trauma. Oh, yeah. Porn with oh, a yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have, I mean, obviously you have an opinion. Um, mm -hmm. What do you, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because white people are only comfortable seeing black pain? Do you think it's like, we, we like to make ourselves feel bad. And so then we give an award about it. Like, what do you think it is from your perspective? Ooh, God, that is so, listen, <laughs> gosh, that's, look, trauma porn is a show in and of itself too. Okay, so I think that it just, 
So you know how I, I, I kind of, um, when I think of trauma porn, so I think that there's a couple of ways that it can go. I think sometimes I think of it almost like when I try to understand cutting, you know, when people are in emotional distress and they address it by cutting themselves and they're like, I just need to feel something or I just need to, I need to feel pain here to distract from the pain there. So either they're numb and they want to feel something or they have some incredible pain and they need to be distracted from that pain by creating pain somewhere else. So I feel like trauma porn does that for people. Um, I think when it's a little bit removed and it's happening to someone else, it makes it safer to consume, right? Because it's just too close to home if it looks like your child, right? Like that's, that's actually really painful when it looks like you. Um, when you see, when you see yourself, and I know, and it's actually, it's called traumatic empathy. You can look it up. <laughs> um, if I watch something and the person that it's happening to looks like me, I'm going to experience it in a much more traumatic way than you watching it, watching someone who doesn't look like you. So do I experience traumatic empathy or do you experience no. traumatic empathy? I experience traumatic empathy. And because okay. it feels like it's happening to me in a sense. Okay, cool. Right? Like, you know, you can just, let's just say, you know, you're a dog lover. You have a cute little puppy who you love. Don't, you have a cat, right? I do. Yes. Right. Okay. If you see, if you're driving by and you see roadkill and there's a cat in the road because you have a cat, you're like, oh, if you drive by and see a cat in the road that looks just like your cat, though, mm -hmm. that's traumatic empathy, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's close to your house and it's like, oh my God, wait a minute for yeah. a second. Yeah. If, you know, <laughs> if for a second you're thinking, wait a minute, is that my cat? Right. Mm -hmm. If you have to have, if you have to do a double take to make sure that that's not your cat. Yeah. Um, you and know, then that, it, it could even be, sorry, something that came to mind is yeah. it, let's say I've had a dog hit before. Um, right. and I, cause I live out right. in the, I grew up in the country and right. let's say okay. I've had a dog die because mm -hmm. it's been hit by a car. So then that's, a, I'm sure traumatic empathy as well, but it's also a different in, interaction because I'm not just like, oh my gosh, it looks like my cat. I'm like, right. I know what it feels like to have my dog hit that's another by level. a car. Right, you know? that's another level. Yeah, so that's yeah. another thing. Yeah, so I do think that there's a thing about pain porn where it's, people want to engage with pain. They want to feel something. That's part of what people consume entertainment for. They want to feel something or they want to feel something that's going to distract them from what they're actually feeling in their own lives. And if it's happening to someone that doesn't look like them, it removes them to a safe place from the pain where they can sort of selectively consume it or feel like they're safely consuming it. Um, and they're getting something out of it without actually having to be participating in it. You know what I mean? Um, I think that that's part of what can make it very attractive for non-Black people to watch Black people suffering. We don't get that. <laughs> Most of Black people I've talked to are like, I'm really tired of watching Black people suffer. Lupita Nyong'o, amazing <laughs> actor. But Girl. I didn't watch 12 Years a Slave, but I'm just imagining Ooh. her scene, if I was to see it as a white person in the I mean, I don't want to just 
um, take down one person's performance and just label it as trauma porn, but it would have given me a very emotional reaction. And I would be, I would be like, Oh my gosh. And then I'd be like, Lupita have this award and I'm not taking away from what an amazing actor she is. Right. She deserved it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and she's one of my favorite people to listen, um, be interviewed by the way, just, she's so, she's just, she's just so interesting she could be yeah, a doctor really. and I'd be like yes I'll listen to you talk about it right. but that makes a lot of sense because it makes you know what that's so funny though because if you really look back at the women the black women in particular especially the black women who've gotten these major awards for best actress or best supporting actress um they almost always have played women who have either endured trauma or they were you know like a drug dealer a slave a crackhead you know what I mean um or they got naked like um let's see if somebody you know gets an award for playing Michelle Obama you know I don't know I don't see it happening to be honest with you um that's what's been rewarded right and I did watch 12 Years a Slave and I remember that's when I decided we will not be filming a graphic rape scene I value Lupita's work in that movie. I wanted to turn away from that scene when I was watching it. It was so hard to watch. I didn't turn away for the same reason I insisted on reading all of the names in that display at the Smithsonian Museum. Um, Because I felt like I need to honor her work and respect her work by watching it. I need to go ahead and respect that. And not only the work that she was doing, but also I need to respect everyone she's representing who went through that. I need to not turn my head mm-hmm. because I just have the option to do that because the women who went through it didn't have the option, right? Um, but I, I vowed to only watch it once. I don't really want to see that movie again, really. <laughs> if I do see it again, I will fast, I will not be watching that twice because of what it did to me. But I also remember saying, okay, that's been done. If you need to get a really good idea of, you know, what the actual experience, you know, might have been like for a woman who was enslaved to be raped by her. Listen, somebody did that. They did it so well. Mm -hmm. Go watch that movie. Go watch that scene. There it is. I'm not doing it again. It's been done. So I just wanted to give another perspective on that. And so I emphasize, I made it a point to emphasize the aftermath, the emotional aftermath, and what was happening to all the people who were around. Because this kind of stuff did not just affect the person it was happening to, it affected everybody. Like, you just can't be in an environment where a man is helping himself to a woman's body as though she's not even human, as if she, you know, violating her on that level and that's not reverberating that's not happening okay Mm -hmm. because it's it's such a violation of the image of god that there is just no way that people are being unaffected and you see it reverberating i mean the scene you did it it was already being talked about you know it you see it's talked about in the argument scene between caleb and and it it it's affecting everybody Mm -hmm. and that's one thing too that i wanted people to get out of it like this was 
I do not want to compare how white people were hurt by slavery to the way black people were hurt. It's a different thing. But that, I'm sure that ate away at people's souls to perpetrate that kind of violence and brutality against people. You do not see people who are, um, you know, you don't see white people in this film who are like, so happy this is working out so great. Um, I think if you if you read Thomas Jefferson's notes, notes on Virginia or whatever they called, I'm blanking so much on everything. You know, you see the turmoil, the inner turmoil of of doing because it is a a, a violation on the on the most foundational spiritual level. Like the human spirit is not. It's like that ring in the Lord of the Rings. Like this is not. It's not even good for the person who holds the power. Right. Um, so there are so many other things to examine in a scene that is covering that topic that doesn't always get examined because we're too busy watching a woman being raped again. Again, like I said, I really appreciate that film. I, I really appreciate how it was covered. And I really appreciate Lupita's work in that moment. But I just wanted to do something else. I think that is such a great way to look at it um, and how mm, I, I kind of think about like almost like the trauma porn is we're comfortable. I'm like as like a white audience viewer, it's like we're comfortable with seeing that. But mm -hmm. then um, how that new movement online has been like black joy. It's like, yeah. look, it's like black female joy, you know, right. like it, right. we don't all have to be always just so strong. Yeah. And it's like, uh, uh, there was, um, cottage core, you know, that's like the style kind of trend. Mm -hmm. And it's all about like beautiful kind of like peasant dresses and lace. And I'm going to drink tea in a field or, you know, right. whatever. And, um, there's an account that, they're like, you know, black women just being feminine and lacy and right. sitting in a field drinking tea. Right. This is a white space. And so there's an account where it's all, it's like celebrating all these creators making it because mm -hmm. we just think about like, oh, she's so strong. And then we're oh, like, girl. okay, you know. I didn't want Clara to be very strong though. Hmm. I didn't want her to be strong. I, I wanted her to just be normal, mm -hmm. right? Like when I was standing there at that exhibit, reading these names of all these women, mm -hmm. you know, if I had imagined them all as Harriet Tubman, who is the superhuman to me, um, I would not have appreciated their suffering the way I, I appreciated it because they reminded me of myself, who I know to be vulnerable, who I know to be weak, who I know to be needy. Um, that's what made them so awesome to me because I was like, I could not do this. <laughs> I couldn't live through this. Like I'm not that strong, right? And and I don't um I don't ever want to. I do think that black women are amazing, and we've been um, covered by a lot of divine favor to survive as much as we have collectively, and to manage to thrive the way we do, to the extent that we do. But um, I didn't want Clara to be strong. I didn't want her to be like woke and so sharp and just bouncing back from everything. Um, I wanted her to need the people around her. You know, Clara, she's not, she don't come across as the sharpest knife in the drawer, like at the beginning. She just seems a little innocent and kind of pure and ignorant a little bit and just not really aware, you know, and she has to 
be talked to about by some people who were like, girl, it's not like that, you know? Um, but even in the midst of it though, um, she endures some things that just seem unimaginable. She makes choices to protect other people. She puts herself in harm's way to protect other people. She, um, um, and you see her in some moments where it's clear that she looked like she's about to give up because that's real, right? And someone literally has to, in those moments, pick her up or come to her and say, girl, let me help you, right? And it's usually another black woman. Um, she has to be rescued. She didn't get herself out of slavery. Um, she didn't do anything all by herself. She had to be loved on and she had to be supported and she had to, um, she had to have the grace of God, you know, covering her and she had to have a purpose outside of herself or she wouldn't have been able to do it. I don't think she comes across as someone who's just, you know, wow, just unrelatably strong. I hope that people see all the stuff that made it possible for her to get to the end you know, for her to get to the other side of slavery, because it wasn't just that she was so strong, and she really wasn't, she's really normal, mm -hmm. and uh, I, don't, I don't know anyone, certainly not me, who has survived a trauma just because of just personal inner strength, like, you need community, you need somebody to care, you need a purpose outside of yourself, you need divine power, you need, you know, you don't just survive that. That's why the theme of the film is survival ain't by accident. Um, that's not to say that it's survival is, you know, a, a result of this um, amazing human will. Survival is, is a lot of things coming together to make it possible for us to survive. And then after the surviving, the persevering and the overcome. Claire needed to be picked up. And then you're so right, because throughout the film, it is the women who mm -hmm. are picking her up um, mm -hmm. the whole time. And that is that community is what keeps her going um, mm -hmm. throughout the film. Um, yeah, I think if we're only looking to characters that are like just really strong on their own, then I'm like, yeah. well, I can't do that. But if someone's like, and she has the support of 10 people who mm -hmm. are great. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I know 10 people who are great, <laughs> you know, right. um, it's very different, you know, and then that was your story in a lot of ways. Like this was such an, a ridiculously huge mm -hmm. task and, yeah. um, and you did it, um, tying it back together of through the support of the people around you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I wanted to make sure I paid tribute and I always will, whether it's an interview or I'm doing it online, I'm always like highlighting all these other people who made my personal journey possible. Um, I do draw strength and inspiration from my heritage, from my faith, like all of that. Like there's no, you know, I'm not just black girl magic all by myself, you know, like that's not a thing. Um, but I also wanted to make sure I had a hero in the story that people could relate to and see themselves in so that they can see like, you don't have to be a Harriet, okay? And honestly, I don't know that we know Harriet Tubman well enough because I'm like, well, she had to be human though. You know what I mean? Like I just really have her just this elevated person. Um, she had to be human though. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Man. You know, <laughs> um, but you know, you don't have to be that. You don't, 
forget about let's let's forget about our um enslaved here you don't have to be supergirl you don't have to be um black panther <laughs> You don't have to be Captain America. You don't, you don't have to be any of these people who have a cape and who have, you know, amazing technology and who live in an alternate universe to do something amazing. Normal people are really the heroes and the lifeblood of any movement. And big change never happens because one person by themselves was so awesome. All of that happens because normal people, the unsung heroes, were all playing some role. They just found some one thing that they were good at that they could do to help keep this moving. Um, and they moved the movement along and made it possible, right? So if you listen to people tell stories about like Thurgood Marshall traveling through the South to try all these significant civil rights cases, you know, there were so many people that just made sure that he made it into their house and they fed him. We don't know their names, but the man had to have somewhere safe to stay and he had to eat in order to do what he was doing. And he couldn't stay at a white hotel, you know what I mean? And they literally, so many people in the community literally would have come together to protect him because they were always trying to lynch the man. You know what I mean? So none of these people, you know, um, when Martin Luther King went from church to church or from Malcolm X went to do that, they were not planning the meals. They weren't figuring out who's gonna feed these people. They weren't figuring out, you know, the parking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else was doing that, uh-huh. right? And we don't know their names. They were regular people mm-hmm. like Clara. So that was the point of this movie was to, let's look at the regular people, mm-hmm. right? We didn't, I'm not here because every one of my ancestors was a Harriet mm-hmm. or a Sojourner um, or a Frederick Douglass or a Nat Turner. They were not all those, they were not all like that, right? I'm here because so many of them, literally just refused to die, you know? Like if that's all they did, that's what I needed them to do so I could be here. Mm-hmm. So that's a thing and they deserve a show. They deserve a show, they deserve applause. They deserve to be remembered well. They do not deserve to be remembered for, oh, well, they didn't do enough. Yeah. Why didn't they run? Why didn't they fight? What, you know, they, yeah. they deserve to be remembered well. Yeah. So that was a whole thing just to get up every day and not, kill yourself in that situation that's the whole thing by itself yeah I feel like you could have put a like a camera crew or something and made any of those stories into a television show mm-hmm. and there would have been so, it, like each of them have such a unique story and it could have yeah. really been anyone you know oh, yeah 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 I mean, any of those characters I mean Annabelle could be a whole show she's so interesting Mm-hmm. I mean, she wasn't the one suffering the most by far. Um, Aggie, she only had a couple scenes, but she, that little boy, what happened to Tommy? We could follow him. That's a whole show. Like I could make a lot of shows out of this. Um, I, the love story between Caleb and Clara, but, but, or even between Gabe and Clara. I didn't do that on purpose because I want people to imagine I want people to ask the questions. Well, how did she get there? Well, who, who, you know, what? How long was she at that plantation? Was she somewhere else before? I want them to ask those questions. Like, how did she meet Caleb? 
You know what I mean? Was it just arranged or did they actually fall in love? Did Gabe have a family before Clara? I want people to think through these things and imagine these things and be like, well, if they did, then how would that have happened? Or, you know what I mean? I want people to play with those things in their mind um, and just be thinking about that history. Because when you start getting into that imagination, then you have to start getting into the reality of how different that time was and how difficult it was. Because now you can't just imagine it like the way it happens to you. So you, you might now need to go do some research and find out, well, let's say two enslaved people fall in love. How, how do they end up getting married? Do they, can they always get married? Can, let's say somebody loses their child and they're, they're, they're sold away. Do they ever get them back? in the reconstruction, what happened? Like, how do, these are good questions. I will not answer them. I want people to think about them. I want people to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Educate thyself. Yes. Yeah, no, and I love that. And it's so clear that you've you've done so much research um, into mm. this and the historical accuracy, but also it's, it's like you've been prepping for this before 2018. Oh yeah. I didn't realize it, which is really amazing. Mm. Um, you've been, you've been prepared. Um, well, um, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to me and I really, I've like enjoyed this and getting to like, see your beautiful face again has been. Oh, thank you. It's so good to see you. And this has been fun and I'm so glad we got the time to do it. I love it. And I hope your audience enjoys it as much as we did. I know. I love it. These conversations are just, I don't know they're like why I kind of keep going you know yeah for sure um yeah no it's in quarantine being able to have these really intentional conversations about what someone makes um is so cool you know and like sitting down with a focus like okay we're dissecting this we're not just gonna be like what's your favorite color or, (laughs) you know, I think that's so important. Um, So anyways, thank you so much. And um, I really appreciate it. Yay. Thank you, Rebecca. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Charlie, for talking to me. If any of y'all have a platform uh, where you want to keep having conversations, talk more about this film, please invite Charlie on because the way that she carries a conversation is just it, it how she poses questions or how she answers is just it's ripe for continuing a conversation does that make sense she never just gives you an answer um it, it's just how she continues a conversation is just so interesting and it really makes you think as you can tell from this um she is lovely uh please check out unsung i'm gonna be tagging that in the show notes and um i love you guys and we will hang out again soon might not be on a weekly basis like I love to have, but um, we're going to keep chatting, and I love you. Bye-bye.